Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, the Hall of Famer himself, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Connie. I'm good, buddy. I'm glad to be talking to you and all the fans out there. It's been a, it's a beautiful day here in Norman. Uh, I got a lot of, I got a lot on my plate right now and uh, excited about getting back involved, uh, on, on the road a little bit here with the AEW. So, uh, life is good right now. Life is really good. I have no, no flu, no virus symptoms, uh, haven't had any fever. So luckily for that, knock on wood as I am now, I'm, I'm good. So, uh, life is good, man. Uh, you know, it's funny how much uh, we look around our place and you know, having all these home projects, home improvement projects done, well, I'm going to be gone for a while, extended trip. And I'm going to be, uh, having my master bathroom remodel while I'm gone. So you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to walking back in my door toward the end of this month of May and having a new bathroom. So that'll be kind of cool. It will be cool. And, uh, we're looking forward to having you back on the call every Wednesday on AEW. If you haven't already set your DVRs, it's Wednesday nights on TNT dynamite. Sounds like uh, good old Jr. the black hat is going to be back on the call pretty soon. Yeah. Pretty soon. That's the plan. Uh, I don't know when uh, based on timeline, cause we're, we're trying to tape it a little bit, <clears throat> get a lot of work done in advance, but, uh, uh, I'm, I'm excited about the, that opportunity and get back in the groove. And I think I may be, I may be turning heel because, uh, people are probably going to want to hear Tony and, uh, and Jericho. <laughs> so, uh, have to, maybe they'll let me sit in with them. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I'm looking forward to it and I'm really looking forward to today's episode. We're covering one of my very favorite matches of all time. I've wanted to talk about this with you for a long time. It's wrestle war 89 music city showdown. It went down on may 7th, 1989. So today is the 31 year anniversary right there at the Nashville municipal auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee, 5,200 fans paying a gate of $37,000. Yeah. Does a buy rate of 1.3. So not, not a sellout crowd, not a huge gate, but what look, a memorable night. Yeah. Look at the average ticket prices at those numbers. You just, just mentioned Yeah, 5,000 and change 37 grand in, in gross house is about $7 a ticket. It's pretty ridiculous. And, yeah. Well, you know, it's what the market would bear because at that time, the, you know, WCW had a lot of perception problems. And, uh, even though we're starting to amass a lot of, uh, good talents. There still was that stigma that, that nobody could come close to WWE at that era. And there, and that's largely true, but it was a, it was a, it was a, this show to me was, uh, kind of, a a launching point that we can continue to do good wrestling and we're adding a few guys here and there. And some of those guys we'll talk about in this show, adding uh, really made it an impressive talent roster, but again, the perception that TBS and WCW weren't even in the same hunt with, uh, WWE, WWF at the time, uh, is uh, very, very pr- prominent. And, and as we talk about this, it was a big issue and could not be fixed overnight. Well, let's talk about where we are right now. We're coming off the shytown town rumble pay-per-view, which took place on February 20th. Of course, we saw Ricky, the dragon steamboat win his first world title. He defeated his longtime rival, Ric Flair for that one. And it's the first of a famous trilogy in 1989. Of course, the second match, the rematch from Chi-Town town rumble was clash of the champions. That was head to head with WrestleMania, which we recently did a show on. It was, uh, 
from the Superdome. And unfortunately, a lot of people were super unemployed after that one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't good. It wasn't some, some strategic errors were made in that one. Two out of three falls match there. Uh, Ricky gets the win, but there's some controversy because Flair's foot was under the rope. So here it is. Uh, the final rematch, the rubber match, it's wrestle war. Before we talk about the news and notes heading into the company, what do you think of Ricky steamboat as the, as the world champion? I think Rick has called him the, the ultimate, uh, white meat baby face. And he was no doubt about it. As good a baby face as I ever called a match for because he could sell and he had amazing facial expressions. So mechanically you couldn't outbook Ricky steamboat. He could do anything with anybody. And of course, when he put him with flair, they loved to work with each other. They'd work with each other dozens and dozens of times throughout the old Crockett territory. They had a comfort zone with each other that that they could continue to build upon. In other words, the comfort zone was they like working together, but they didn't do the same thing in every match, even though they had spurts intervals where you'd seen that sequence of moves, but they changed things around. They kept things fresh. Uh, so I, I, but I thought Ricky did a, a good job. Look, the thing about Ricky steamboat, as far as the face of your company, and I think the face of your company's always got to be your top champion. Uh, at least it makes common sense to me. At least one of the focuses of the company has got to be your top champion. You're never going to get embarrassed by Ricky steamboat. He's a class act still is, uh, you weren't going to read about him in the papers. You weren't have any incidents. Everything's going to be cool. Uh, and, and the fact that, uh, he was so he was respected by not only his peers, but the fans as well, because he had, a, he had a consistent body of work for many, many years. And that body of work was just excellent. So I, I don't think that Ricky was a bad champion whatsoever. He just, he was a different kind of champion, Conrad. Nobody's going to have the charisma that Ric Flair had or had has whatever. Uh, it, they just don't. So there was a little drop off in that aspect of the presentation, but as far as the act, actual bell to bell, he was, he was superior. So I, I thought he did a, a good job with that championship. Again, one of the reasons it worked because it was new. The, the win in Chicago was his first title win, a big time title win. So, uh, it was still kind of fresh and to have three matches in a, in a, in a, not even a whole calendar year, you're talking from what, uh, uh, February to May, right? So February, March, four months. You got three big man events. That's kind of unusual that it wasn't spread out a little farther, but uh, I thought Ricky was a good champion and always a great representative to the business itself. Talk to me a little bit about what, you know, as a rule you subscribe to more, what philosophy, a baby face chasing the world title and a heel on top or a baby face champion. Like we saw with the WWF for so long. Well, I kind of like the, uh, uh, I kind of like the ladder. I like, I kind of like that strong. Uh, baby face champion that overcomes a lot of odds is always put in jeopardy has to fight from underneath. As they say, uh, as long as that heel challenger is viable and that we really believe the announcers make it, make you believe or help make you believe that this guy can beat the champion, but I have no issues, uh, as the same, at the same breath saying, well, if you got a, a champion that has to cheat to win occasionally or takes a shortcut here and there. And you get, and you get these baby faces that if they get a fair shake, I know my guy can beat this, this heel champion. Uh, that's not a bad scenario either. It really depends on the booking and the cast or the casting, who is the champion, who is the challenger. And then what kind of story did, did we tell? Uh, I thought that we told some good stories with flair and steamboat, 
but for whatever reason, it seemed like it started losing a little bit of its edge with the public going into the, uh, this match we're talking about here today. So it, it was fresh. It was different, but I, I kind of like the, uh, the baby face champion, uh, fighting off the bad guys. And cause I think that's more traditional. It's easy to comprehend and to follow the story. It's easy to relate to it. So, uh, if I had my, if I had to pick one, I'd pick the baby face champion, uh, with the heels, viable heels, strong heels, uh, hot on his heels, no, no pun intended. Uh, so, but you can make both of them work. You can, if it's, if it's good booking and the right people in the right place, either concept will work Pref, uh, for me, as I mentioned, the baby face champion being, being, uh, chased by the, the bad guys has always seemed, seemed like it worked for me. Let's talk a little bit about the news and notes heading into the company. Meltzer would report that the status of Barry Windham is up in the air. He says, as of press time, Windham and the NWA have parted company with Windham being fired. However, the decision isn't final today, as it seems to have been earlier in the week. There are a lot of things that led up to a surprising development. As most of you know, Windham was supposed to undergo an operation where they re-break his injured hand and reset it several weeks back. Since that time, Windham has basically disappeared from view. His name hasn't even been mentioned on television, nor was anything done at such an angle that would explain his absence to the fans. The surgery at one point was alluded to on TV, but would never made strong enough. that fans would actually know what was going on. And a lot has happened since that time. Not all of which is clear to us on this end. Wyndham and the NWA hierarchy didn't remain in contact over the past few weeks. And there were allegations that Wyndham never had the surgery. There was apparently difficulty in reaching Wyndham on part of those in charge in order to find out when he planned to return to action. Apparently Wyndham himself was miffed that he wasn't picked to be a member of the new booking team. And the originally laid out scenario of Wyndham becoming the next NWA champion had been changed since all the pre-planned scenarios had been changed to a different direction with the recent booking change. Since that time, uh, Wyndham and Hurd have had several phone conversations to try and work out a reconciliation. It hasn't been agreed upon yet, but both sides are still talking. It appears the future of Wyndham within the NWA will be decided one way or another this week. A key determining factor seems to be whether or not Wyndham actually had his hand operated on. You know, you've talked about this a lot, Jim, that it all comes down to cash and creative. And it feels like here, maybe the creative Wyndham is not tickled with. What do you remember about the frustrations about Wyndham, maybe not being in contact with the office. And there was a debate about whether or not he should be the next champ and whether or not he had his surgery, like he was supposed to. So much controversy surrounding uh, that and so much of it unnecessary. It simply was a matter of, uh, uh, uh bad communication. Uh, you know, maybe you know, over the years, Barry's reputation has not been kind to him uh, for, for situations just like this. Uh, I don't know if I can't remember if he had the surgery or not, to be honest with you. Uh, and, but here's the thing the, you we can talk about Barry, not having great uh, time management skills or, uh, great communication skills. Uh, or whatever, nobody can ever doubt the fact that Barry Wyndham was an, an amazing worker and he would have made a great NWA champion because he could work baby face. He could work heel. We work with big guys, we work smaller guys. He was extraordinary. Uh, but the, the, the whole thing about getting somebody presenting them that, that top spot there is that you got to be able to rely on them. And there was a consensus around there that, you know, is, as Barry's hunger, waned as he burned out, uh, you know, is what, what's the story here. And so if you can't really a hundred percent or as close to hundred percent as you can get 
to rely on your talents, especially in that role. Uh, you, you, you really got to rethink that a little bit. So, you know, I just, I don't, it may, you know, some of this might also have been the fact that, that, uh, Dusty wasn't a booker right? And, and Barry and Dusty were very, very close. And I'm sure if Dusty had been the booker that, uh, that Barry would have been more connected, uh, cause he would have gotten one-on-one, uh, good, good, uh, one-on-one treatment from the head guide and that being the booker and that being Dusty at the time. And they were buddies from years ago and all the way going back to, you know, Dusty idolizing black Jack Mulligan, uh, you know, Barry's father, you know, who was one of the greats of all time and a guy that could, Dusty could really identify with that Texas background brawler, you know, tough guy and all that good stuff. So I think the Dusty situation probably affected Barry more negatively than anything else. And, uh, then we went to the booking committee and now when you get on the booking committee, the other wrestlers got two choices here. When you got active participants on a booking committee, you can either, you can either get along or move along. And, and Barry, I think was probably a little bit leery that he wasn't on the booking committee that his, uh, his, his, his lot in life there, uh, Conrad would not be represented as he would have wanted it as he, as it would have been if Dusty had been the sole booker. So I, there's a lot of things that play here, but you know, but Barry, I, I just think somewhere along the way, it seems to me like he just got a little bit burned out and, uh, and you know, just maybe the, he didn't want to leave w, WCW, but, uh, I think he probably saw there was probably really no choice at this point in time, but he, nobody should ever think that his issues were because he couldn't work anymore. We're going to talk about some guys on the show today that should not have been booked. Right. They, sh- they they're on the show that this, why you got to, why with this, why is this match here? Why, why are we doing this? And so, uh, you know, I, I think that's part of the story there with, with Barry. I, it was, it was a big loss because it, a properly motivated, uh, and incentivized Barry Wyndham could be as good as anybody that we had on the roster bar none, anybody, but something was just there that in his head that didn't click for him. And, uh, you know, he, he lost his luster. So it was, it was a big loss for WCW at that time that, uh, you know, they were having issues with Barry because we were counting on him to be, he was young, talented, you know, everything we said. So it's just, it was a unfortunate situation. What's without a doubt, but nobody should ever think that the reason it was because, well, his work had slipped. No, he was still a great worker. It was not, it wasn't anything to do with his work had everything to do with his attitude. Let's mention too, cause you, you did bring up a great point that maybe, um, because dusty isn't here, he doesn't feel like, um, dusty can protect him or dusty's booking or, or whatever the case may be. Dusty has just shown up for the WWF in this era and he's black. He's in the black and yellow polka dots and uh, he's the common man. And, but either way, he's gone to the WWF. And shortly thereafter, Barry would follow. We know he's going to show up there. He's going to work as the widow maker. He will eventually return to the NWA, but I do wonder, you know, what if cooler heads had prevailed? Do you think if, if Wyndham would have been able to find some sort of, uh, terms that he was happy with, with Jim Hurd, that perhaps Wyndham could have been the next guy in line to be the world champ. I mean, we know when flair leaves in 91, they at least put him in the cage with Luger and give him the shot. An 89 run with the title, that could have been something else for Barry. It had been a good move. I think it had been a good move. Uh, I always loved Barry's work. He's, 
he was so, had that long frame and, and, uh, you know, six, six good looking guy. The women loved him. He could fight. The guys knew that he, he could handle himself. Uh, you know, being the son of blackjack Mulligan didn't kill him, uh, because blackjack had a legion of fans in his era as well. Got over big time in a lot of territories as a baby face and as a heel. So, uh, yeah, that would have, that would have been a nice move. I think looking back at it in hindsight, at least it seems like it would be work on paper, but, uh, you know, we got to understand too, dusty was, uh, Barry's mentor. He basically raised Barry within the wrestling business because Barry saw he Barry hitched his wagon to dusty because his dad, who, you know, he loved his dad, his father, all the good stuff, but he didn't have any power. Right. He didn't have any influence. He wasn't in a position within the business to help Barry other than he, he, he was early on because he got him booked, you know, blackjack Mulligan jr. And all those things he, he, they did, but dusty was really the guy for Barry. And when dusty wasn't there, that security blanket was no longer prevalent. Uh, it really, it bothered him. And so, you know, I don't think Barry had a lot of faith and it justifiably. So by just by the looks of things in the, uh, WCW hierarchy. And certainly again, on the booking committee, who was the, of all the guys in the booking committee, who was the friendly face there that was going to take care of Barry. Right. He, he probably thought nobody because he was a, he was a one man, man, dusty was the guy. So, uh, I think the dusty leaving going to WWF at the time was like you say, is about a bigger thing is big an issue with Barry having indecisive, being indecisive. Being, you know, are they going to change or am I going to get my shot? Can I work on, am I going to get a chance to work on top and draw money and make guys better and blah, blah, blah. And he probably obviously thought, no, that's not going to happen. So it might be just best for me to take my chances and move on. Even though the widow maker was never pushed to any degree no. in WWF. So if you just went there for the paydays and you got a good, you got middle of money out of it, then that's, a, that's a little cash part of the cash and creative thing. But to say he was, he, he could have been happy with a creative in WWF as a widow maker would be, I think, uh, misnomer. It is fun to just think about what could have been. Let's talk about what actually was though. Uh, the lots of, lots of moving parts. Meltzer would report. There's been several other major talent moves this past week. Johnny ACE was in Atlanta for the tapings, but hasn't started yet. The current plan is to team him up with Shane Douglas as a babyface team. And the working title right now is the new generation. Although the name could change Sam Fatu slash Islander, Thomas slash Tonga kid started at the tapings on Tuesday night, which aired this coming weekend as a heel using the name Tonga, the Polynesian savage Tonga is actually the twin brother of Fatu of the Samoan SWAT team. Tom Pritchard, who was originally scheduled to debut this week, won't be coming in right now because the two sides failed to agree on money. Bunny Landell's name is back in the hat once again, but it depends on what the booking committee's collective thoughts are concerning him as to whether or not he'll be offered a job or not. The rock and roll express are also trying to get in, but I've yet to hear of a scenario in which bringing them back would be beneficial and the latest acquisition, both in terms of reputation and helping the organization, at least in the short term run is Terry Funk who reached an agreement this past week and will be starting in sometime in may and quickly moved into a key spot. So. Before we talk about Terry, let's start at the beginning. Johnny Ace and Shane Douglas, the new generation. Of course, we know it's going to become dynamic dudes. If you had to describe that team with a sound, not a word, 
Could you make a sound that would uh, replicate your feelings on dynamic dudes as a team? <laughs> By the way, a, folks, this is all off the cuff. I just literally made that up and, and Jr. knew exactly where to go. It's one of my dry heave sounds. Yeah. It, uh, look, they were, uh, heard thought they were, they were the WWE like and young and blonde and you know, good looking guys, good bodies, all that stuff. But collectively they just didn't have the charisma that they're trying like we're saying here about the rock and roll express. you mentioned them, right? Like Melcher, well, I don't know what they do to bring them back. That mean anything. Well, I can't really believe they would say that even in 89, they were as good a babyface tag team as there was in the business for sure. I mean, come on, who are we bullshitting here? So, you know, well, I don't know what they do to bring them back. But then when he came to talk to Terry about Terry, who was a friend of days, they were glowing and, and, and Terry earns all the, all those accolades, but the, uh, the dynamic dudes, it was an idea that, uh, you know, you're, you're given these mandates by, by the upper management, Jim heard this situation. We need to get young. I want a hot baby face team. No, God damn it. I don't want the rock and roll. How old are they? How long have you been around too long? God damn. I want a gin. It takes a lot of fuel on this engine. Uh, come on. Hey, I, hey, look, I could at today. You could use Ricky and Robert today. Yeah, sporadically key spots. They, they had some great outings in AEW this, in, in, in 2019 cameos. Yeah, but it worked. Right. So, uh, I, I, I didn't agree with that assessment. Today's opinion. I'm not dis- disrespecting his opinion. I just don't agree with it, but, uh, the dudes were, it was an experiment and you know, they, they were just, they, it didn't get over and that may have been part booking. I, I think it was essentially a charisma thing. I think it was a. They just never clicked connected to the audience because their little, their costumes seem to be disingenuous. They're trying too hard to be cool, hip young guys. And Lauren, could not ride the skateboard. So, uh, you know, or one of them couldn't, I think it was Lauren, one of them. Yeah, it was Lauren. Let's talk about Tom Pritchard, our, our old pal, Bruce's brother, one of the greatest trainers ever. He's got a phenomenal school going right now in Knoxville. I'm sure they'll be opening back up for business as soon as things get more normalized, but he, he didn't have, I mean, he has an opportunity to come in, can't come to terms on money and doesn't, this feels like maybe a misstep from Tom. I mean, this could have been one of his bigger breaks. This would have been the most mainstream attention he'd gotten at this point. Right. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening. 
wherever you listen. Yeah, and he, Tom was a Tom would have been an, uh, a great addition to the locker room. Uh, great guy to to lead younger baby faces. In other words, if you had a personal angle with Tom and another heel against dynamic dudes, that would have given the dudes somebody that could lead them and uh, help frame their matches. And and uh, but you know that didn't happen. But Tom would have been a great addition. I saw where it said, you know, uh, the money deal. I don't know unless I'm assuming what that meant was he got a completely low ball offer from the office. Right. And, uh, you know, his, but there's where you, you, your product knowledge comes to bite you in the ass. Some, some guys you want on your roster, even though, you know, they're not going to probably work on top whatsoever. But what they can do, I, I always equate uh, Conrad to, to Major League Baseball. Everybody's not going to hit fourth right. or third or fifth in that, in that sweet part of the lineup. But Tom, but you got to have guys that can hit, can move runners around. You got to get guys to get on base in the seven, eight, nine holes. You got to have that. You got to. Uh, I saw a thing on the draft the other NFL draft where, you know, most of the players on teams are, are drafted on the second, third day. Uh, the t- number ones on all, you know, there, there's just so many of them, a handful of them, but the, your rosters are basically built up, not of number one draft picks. So Tom could have helped us win if, but apparently the offer was so insulting. It was, uh, not even, uh, worth, uh, worth considering because as you pointed out, Conrad, that would have been big for Tom. That would have been big for Tom Then 89, he was still younger and in good shape, hell of a hand could have helped us. So it's, it's unfortunate that it happened because I'd love to see him on that, on that roster, uh, helping people because he always had that gift of coaching, helping guys with pointers and little nuances. Cause he was a student of the game and, uh, nonetheless, it just didn't work out, but I can see him. I can see him. Look, I can see him being used like Cornette used him in OVW. They're part of a tag team that drew money, right? They were good heels he and Jimmy Del Rey. So I, I I, 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 that's always a, uh, one of my regrets that Tom didn't get hired. I'd forgotten about that whole scenario, the negotiation and all that stuff, but the booking committee didn't have anything to do with what you're going to be offered salary wise. You, they, you, they may suggest a number to herd. We may have suggested a number to herd what the guy's worth, but you know, again, you go back to a, a, a head honcho making the final, final decisions that doesn't have a lot of product knowledge, you get, you get decisions made that are always not the best for the brand. And man, you talk about Tom Pritchard only 29 years old right here. Could have been no talent, but let's talk about Terry Funk. We know that Terry Funk is going to be a big part of this show we're covering. He's involved in the main event and the, the post-match angle, which is just tremendous. Still talked about to this day. But a lot of people probably felt like, oh man, Funk's probably past his prime. He's going to crank out some of his best work ever here in 1989. And you're an old school guy. How excited were you to hear that? Hey, Terry Funk may be coming in. Oh, very excited. Very excited. Conrad. I, the only thing that I had a hesitation on, cause I hadn't seen Terry in a long time and you know, he wasn't getting any, he was older than me. He was getting, he was getting up there as far as an in, in ring performer. You just wonder how much gas he's got left in his tank. And does he still have the engine that can, can run off that fuel that's there? And of course he answered all those questions and more because he, I think he might've done some of his very best work in his career 
uh, in 89 and in, uh, in that early nineties, uh, working with Rick and, and all those things, he was just excellent. He'd never had a bad promo. You know, he, he was, he had name identity. He had a lot of respect in the locker room till a lot of his peers grew up idolizing him in some form or another Yep. as N- NWA champion, his Japanese stuff was legendary, all that stuff. So he was, he was like, you know, he's, he was like a, one of the, he was a, a made man. He was a hall of famer before he stepped foot in the locker room. So I, the, my only hesitation is I mentioned, what has he got left? And again, he answered those questions very quickly and very definitively. He's got plenty left. Yes, he did. He's only 44 years old. Uh, he's going to turn 45 in June, but it's pretty remarkable to think back, you know, how fans at that time thought, oh, he's over the hill. And, you know, now we've got guys wrestling at a, at a high level, well past that. Uh, let's yeah. keep it moving here. Uh, Meltzer would write my impression right now, after nearly six months of ownership by TBS is there are several people at TBS, those working in the wrestling organization who are very dedicated to this thing going in the right direction. However, the group effort is needed using the power of TBS and it doesn't seem to be made. Uh, there's, there hasn't been any additional media coverage of the NWA wrestlers. The wrestlers haven't been put into positions where they can become quote unquote stars to the general public. And that's something that's needed. If they're ever going to become competition for Titan. And the company itself, and I'm not talking about the wrestling company here. I'm talking about Ted Turner's big company seems to be totally unaware that they have a wrestling company as a sister corporation and that they are at war with Titan sports. The two cases in point after WrestleMania include the extensive WrestleMania coverage on CNN, while at the same time, CNN has yet to ever cover anything the NWA has done since the buyout and the fact that the Titan commercial still managed to air during the NWA special on April 2nd shows me that the TBS rank and file have no idea there is a wrestling war going on, nor are they doing anything to help build the wrestling company. And I know you've talked about this a little bit at our live shows here and there, but you could feel this as an employee within the organization, the way other people sort of looked at you guys, right? You could tell that in the food court at CNN center, you know, uh, it's funny, you know, when, when any of the WCW guys unless it was flair, uh, but any of the rest of us that go down the food court and eat, nobody, uh, wanted to have anything to do with us. Right. I don't know if they for sure knew who the hell we were, even though we were on, t- on their, on their network every week, just was a lack of, again, communication was bad. Perception was, uh, you know, ah, that they, we, we we're, we're a big network. We, that wrestling stuff, Jesus Christ almighty. We got to get away from that. And Turner, you know, I've, I've heard Turner out of his own mouth say, if it hadn't been for wrestling and the Braves and John Wayne movies, we may not be here. Uh, and, and he, he meant it, but he, his, his staff did not share Ted's eccentric apparent, apparent eccentric, uh, perception of pro wrestling. Ted liked it. He liked the program. He liked what the audience had brought. It was consistent. The audience was very, very loyal. As you and I both know, uh, our audience here is very, very loyal. That's one of the beautiful traits of being a wrestling fan loyalty. So, uh, it was just, it was disheartening. You know, the thing about WrestleMania, we get, we don't get nothing. We get zero on CNN. We get nothing anywhere. There's no cross promotion. You know, I got to hand it to Eric on that deal. Eric did a, did a good job of, uh, integrating his brand of his, his WCW into the corporate structure, get all the hats off to credit goes to Eric on that deal. So, uh, but it just, 
it was disheartening, Conrad. It was de- deflating. And that would, and that, that took up two minutes time in these booking meetings. Why the, why the F are you doing it? Why, what, what's going on? And, you know, uh, they look around the room and, you know, there, a lot of the booking committee guys didn't live there. They were just there for the booking meetings once a week. Uh, then they were rushed to get out of there to go make their planes, to get home or where they're going. And so then the rest of us that stayed behind sometimes got to some, uh, some shrapnel friendly fire because we happened to live there and we were there. So why didn't you, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you help? Nobody knew, man. We didn't know they were going to do a feature on WrestleMania on our network. And notwithstanding the fact that their commercials were airing our shows. And that's just a matter of either somebody's not paying attention or they don't give a shit or it's only about the money, uh, or whatever. But it, it was very, very deflating is probably the best word to put. And it proved that we had a lot of work to do there to build bridges from wrestling to the mainstream TBS audience. And that group of people, including myself, were unable to accomplish that. And that's why I give Eric the credit uh, later on. Of course, he hired some stars that, you know, when you hire Hogan and Hall and Nash and guys like that to go with your incumbents, you know, your new star Goldberg and all that, they, they developed, uh, it, it, he, he just outbooked us in that regard. But we, it was not a good, we didn't have Jim Hurt was our representative, Conrad. Think about that. Right. Our, our liaison from wrestling to the other, the, the corporation, to the company was Jim Hurd. Yeah. And sometimes Jim Hurd rubbed people the wrong way. Yeah. To say the least, uh, let's talk about somebody else who's been rubbed the wrong way. It makes the observer that a 63 year old Roy Massey and his wife are suing Bobby Eaton, Stan Lane, Jim Crockett promotions, and a security company where he claims two years prior to this. So back in 87, the midnights accidentally mistook him for another spectator who threw a wood Nile marker at them during a match. Of course, the midnights jump out of the ring and beat the shit out of him. And eyewitnesses have claimed that it was indeed Massey who threw the aisle marker at the wrestlers, but either way, Massey is now suing for $6.15 million in damages. And the trial is set for May 8th. We've often heard Jim Cornette and guys like that talk about how crazy the heat was that the, the midnight sky, especially in the more rural areas of say Louisiana or Mississippi or Texas, talk to us a little bit about. Uh, what you remember of this particular lawsuit, because it does feel like an awful lot of money to be asking Bobby Eaton to come up with here. Uh, that's Huntsville for you. That's Huntsville dialect. It is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think it went, I think it's simply a nuisance suit. The guy was Roy Massey and his heirs looking for a payday. Right. And they, I don't believe they got one. No, I don't think they got a payday. I think there was, I think the suit was dismissed. That might've been in West Virginia. I'm not sure. That's what pops in my head that that may have occurred in West Virginia. It very likely could have, uh, but nonetheless, uh, the midnights, thanks to Cornette efforts as well, uh, had great heat. They were, they were villains and they cheated to win. And so they made great tag team champions because you knew that if, the, if your baby face team got a fair shake, they could win. My guys can win. Same thing we talked about earlier, but they were that good, man. They had great ways of taking shortcuts, all the, all the, all the classic heel things that they did so well. And to be very honest about it, Conrad, we Cornette's a polarizing figure to a lot of folks, uh, because of his outspokenness, 
he'll never be invited to the White House, I would think, uh, which, which should go as a relief to him. Uh, but he was really good, man. I mean, oh, he, my gosh. The best. He, 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 there's nobody I ever saw managing better than Jim Cornette in that, in that, in that particular heel role. Uh, he was just uh, sensational. So he talked people into the seats and then he'd do a little something, something to, uh, piss them off. And it looked so real and so organic it, it worked. So, uh, I think that lawsuit was just nothing but a, a nuisance and somebody looking for a payday and, and then if they didn't, that they did not get no cashes, no checks or cash in that one. How tremendous, you know, if you had to get in your way back machine, would it have been if we could have seen more of Bobby Heenan working with Jim Cornette, the two all-time greatest managers. Oh, it'd been amazing. It'd been amazing. Uh, in any, any capacity, I can imagine Heenan doing commentary with Cornette managing and Heenan would have made Cornette more, even more legendary, you know, but Cornette was the, was, there was never, there was no better manager in wrestling in that era and many other eras prior to and after than Jim Cornette. So he was a big, he was a straw that started to drink in that regard. But, uh, but also we should never discount the uh, abilities of, uh, Bob Eaton and, uh, Dennis Condry. They were old school territory trained wrestling heels that knew how to gain unfair advantages that actually made sense and were logical. They just didn't chop meat. They, they, they were very, very strategic and smart in how they laid out their stuff. But, uh, you got to give Cornette the credit for a lot of that too, because he helped, you know, uh, uh, work out their matches and strategized and all that good stuff. Uh, just again, people say, well, if you don't know Cornette, but by today's, uh, podcast, he does a couple of podcasts a week, uh, things of that nature and his, his, uh, social media stuff, which I find to be, uh, entertaining as shit to, to follow on, on, on Twitter, uh, that, uh, you know, he, he just, he, he just was that good. I mean, we forget how good he was in that regard. And that's what made that team help make that team the best, as good a heel team as I ever saw. And I've seen a lot of really good teams since 74 as a, in the business, earning a living in this crazy world. And then of course, when I was a kid, I always thought the best heel team I ever saw was the assassins, uh, Joey Hamilton and Tom Ernesto. And then, uh, but that little handful of my Mount Rushmore of heel tag teams would include the midnight express and the assassins aren't and Tully for sure. Then we'd have to kind of maybe Patterson and Stevens, something like that. But, uh, it was an art form because most of the territories were baby face territories. So uh, the having great heels to complement those baby faces, you invest the time and money and promotion and marketing in was essential. So, uh, I, I. I always thought that, and how heard, heard, here's the thing. Uh, and I, I'm not going to just kick the guy and it sounds like I am, but he didn't think the rock and roll express had it. And he didn't think the midnight express had it. And that should be enough evidence, your honor, to prove that my client has not a fucking clue. <laughs> and so by reason of insanity, <laughs> I asked this case be dismissed, dismissed. Anyway, uh, that's what I thought about that deal. Let's talk about the, uh, little article that right before this pay-per-view Meltzer wrote about the NWA. It's not the most optimistic. Look, he says the NWA we wrestle this year has been Rocky. Of course, as has been detailed many times, how shows have been a disappointment with nearly six months 
in the TBS regime since they took over, particularly if anything has decreased. The biggest house show of the year, at least that I can recall, was $68,700 for the gate at Chi-Town Rumble. The TV ratings are at their lowest level since pro wrestling came to TBS or even Ted Turner's WTCG in Atlanta. The group hasn't appeared organized a lot at times, and the syndicated show has been a far cry from that of Titan. And even on the occasions where they put things together and deliver the product they advertise wrestling as on the big shows, it has resulted in no improvement in their positioning or popularity. The NWA has done a lot in fairness over the past few months to recognize their problems and make changes to deal with them. But the syndicated shows are still nowhere where they need to be, but there are still slow yet noticeable improvements. As for TBS, the improvements have been even more noticeable, particularly in the last four weeks. They had been weak and bringing in no, new young talent. In recent months, they've added cream of the crop from the smaller circuits, particularly the great Muda, the Samoan SWAT team, and Brian Pillman. The screw job finishes aren't as plentiful. The big shows have more than lived up to their hype. Dusty Rhodes is no longer occupying center stage and holding back younger baby faces. But the NWA's biggest problem right now is not talent. It's not quality of shows. It's not television. It's perception. And it's a problem that's not going to be easy to solve. The NWA is perceived by the general public as second rate wrestling league. It doesn't matter if the wrestling is better in the NWA. And actually it is the general public doesn't believe that is the case. and doesn't perceive that as being the case. So they're going to talk about, you know, what they've done right a little bit, but how fair of an assessment is that at this point? I mean, you were knee deep in it. Did you feel like you were definitely second class to the WWF and was a lot of it based on syndicated television or was it something else? Well, I don't think we ever had the uh, support, pardon me, in that era of our, of our home company, you know, uh, pardon me. Uh, the WWF was in their parent company was all about wrestling, right? Sports entertainment. That was their priority within Turner broadcasting. The, uh, the, uh, wrestling was not a priority. It was almost like, well, we, uh, it's like being the redheaded stepchild. When company came over, the redheaded stepchild has got to go to the barn and hide to the company leaves. Cause we don't want to see you. Uh, cause you know, you're redheaded and you're a stepchild. Uh, but that was kind of how we felt. You know, we just, we were, we're outcasts. We're, we're renegades, outlaws, unwanted. And, and it, and it didn't, it didn't serve to really band everybody together. We could all unite on this cause. Uh, it was still overwhelming that we had this great company that could really make this thing work. If we got their cooperation, you know, it's like, it's like taking unsold commercial time, uh, on your, uh, on the, uh, on TBS and finding, uh, unsold inventory that you could have put a promo or an image piece or something slick on the, uh, we had the people to do that, but getting the airtime is another issue. And I'm assuming they were asked. I don't really know. Uh, cause that was Herd's deal, but he was, the suggestions were given to him many times that we could do things like this, getting guests on shows, uh, having, you know, CNN was just in this infancy, doing a lot of stuff right there in our side of the building. I mean, walk down, get on the elevator and you're in the CNN studio, but nothing. So it, well, I think that that was the key thing is that the perception issue, if we have been able to be, uh, marketed in a, in a organized and consistent manner by our home company, 
that perception, those perception issues would slowly ease Would they always, would they go away or if somebody said, well, I know one thing, those two companies are just, they're the same one, one, they're just even they're not, we're not going to be even WWF had a big head start. They had a great infrastructure. They had Hulk Hogan. Uh, and so it just, it just, uh, wasn't a fair fight in that respect. But that was kind of where we felt like that was, we were falling short. We knew we were, we were adding talents that could work. And we knew that we had talents that were uh, going to be good. Uh, so anyway, it's, it was something I, I, uh, I, I, it was something you look back on and say, man, if only a few little things could have happened, the perception would have been a whole lot different, but that was our biggest issue. We were looked upon by many fans as second rate. And that pissed me off. It pissed the booking committee off and it should have pissed off the talent. Uh, but you know, I don't know if it did or not, but it should have, it should have been a, 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 a polarizing thing that we all came together because we're not even wanted in our own family. We'll show them, but, uh, that needs, you need leadership to do that. You need to, you need to, the, 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 the person in charge. And all we ever heard from Mr. Heard more often than not was just negative shit. Right. He, he, he'd identify the problems over and over and over again, but where are the solutions? And, uh, you know, I would say, I say all the time, well, you know, your buddy's a Jack Petrick. He's one of Turner's right-hand men. Why can't he help us? You know, you got, you got, you, we put Bob do in the, in the, in the role there cause he was Turner's buddy. Why can't he help us? We, there were a few little odd allies of Ted's that we could have utilized, but, we, but they were not approached either. They were not approached or they didn't want to get their hands dirty and be any more associated with pro wrestling than they already were. Let's continue Meltzer's uh, discussion here. He says flair and steamboat have put on some of the greatest matches in years and probably as good a consistent series of matches that have been going back an awfully long time, but the public still doesn't perceive it that way because neither of the two is Hulk Hogan. Before we move any further, how big of a deal was that? I know that sounds silly in hindsight to some of our younger fans, but Hulk Hogan on some level was almost becoming bigger than the business. If he wasn't already, I mean, he was a pop culture figure, the Saturday morning cartoons, the late night TV hosts. I mean, this guy was everywhere cover of sports illustrated. I mean, he has become the poster child and sort of like, you know, band-aid is a brand. It's actually a bandage. And you really want a soda, but people say Coke and they really need a tissue, but they say Kleenex on some level, Hulk Hogan had helped the WWF sort of become interchangeable with professional wrestling by 1989. Had they not? Absolutely. Yeah. He, <clears throat> nobody had gotten over in the wrestling business anywhere remotely close to Hulk Hogan in all the years, you know, the, the Strangler Lewis years, the. Luthez years, all, all those guys, and not, not, that's not taking anything away from those guys. It's just a fact that the times are changing the society because you mentioned the key word pop culture. That was a new term. Yeah. That was a new term. Now it's, it's part of the vocabulary of a lot of things, but he, it was a, a new term and his exposure in mainstream television, NBC, Saturday night's main event, uh, WrestleMania, gosh, you know, all those things. Like you said, you know, I saw something on the, the dark side of the ring, the clip about, uh, Dr. David Schultz, uh, and his, uh, doing his thing to John Stossel. Then they showed the clip of, 
of uh, Hogan putting uh, Richard Belzer, who I didn't realize was that goddamn skinny. Yeah. And I, and he, I'm no wonder he wears all black and covers his body up entirely on, uh, on SVU when he was on that show. Uh, but you know, that was a dangerous thing. He, he could have killed him because you don't know that the guy didn't have a heart issue. You, you cut off the, the blood supply of the brain. He's going to lose consciousness. Could that cause some brain damage at, from a situation that maybe undetected or undiagnosed that you're not aware of, you know, and then letting him fall the floor, his head popping on the floor, busted his head open. He's bleeding, blah, blah, blah. It was a, it was a tough, it was a tough deal, but, uh, Hogan was the guy, man. He was, he was the magic. They had a lot of great talents there. And then, well, you know, WrestleMania three, that, that, uh, steamboat savage match is the best match of the card. Yeah, it was. You're right, sir. But it didn't draw the house. Hogan and Andre drew the house. Hogan, Hogan. And we didn't have Hogan. We, we, and we didn't have the, and it seemingly didn't have the patience or the, or the, or the esprit de corps to, to identify one young stud like Sting and make him the, the, the R Hulk Hogan. It just never, it never got to there. So Hogan was a huge difference maker. And, and I, and I, and I believe that until we got some talents over it, that the number two spot was ours, ours for the taking, but it's a far, far journey from number two in pro wrestling in that era to number one being WWF. Let's, uh, let's keep going with Meltzer's breakdown. He says, now let's get to the May 7th show in Nashville. It's pretty well acknowledged that this event isn't going to be any kind of pay-per-view blockbuster judging from the past three big shows. It'll probably have good to great matches. The main event may be another match of the year caliber event. I know a lot of changes are going to be made over the next three months to change the focus and direction of the promotion. And many significant changes will be taking place on the pay-per-view show. A lot will happen, but from watching the television, I've yet to get the quote unquote impulse to buy the thing. Coming the soon after WrestleMania doesn't help because the public is half hyped out on mega shows. Even more, a great percentage may be temporarily burned out as well. An awful lot of people spent 25 to $30 on WrestleMania and will probably get the bill just a few days shy of the Nashville show. An awful lot of them probably didn't feel they got 25 to $30 worth of entertainment value. And additionally, Flair versus Steamboat is nothing new. While the matches have been excellent, the hype, particularly in the last two weeks, has been dreadful. Flair is doing some of the best wrestling anyone has seen in this generation, but for a guy who has made a reputation of doing great interviews, his, promo, his promos have been major disappointments of late. Steamboat has never been considered one of the world's greatest talkers. He probably could have been effective in this role because in his role as the down-to-earth, honest babyface who more or less gives shoot interviews, he presents a great contrast to a super talker. But the contrast isn't there this time. There has been no personal issue and the belt itself isn't strong enough. And certainly not for a third meeting. I pretty much got May 7th pegged as a hot actual event, which will do the smallest pay-per-view business of any show with the exception of super clash three and some of the early events that didn't have national coverage. What do you think about the breakdown here that maybe flair wasn't on his game promo wise, maybe fans are burnt out, but Meltzer's predicting that this is not going to be a bonanza and that certainly seems to be the case. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I didn't remember Rick's promos uh, hitting a lull during that last build. Uh, that's news to me. Um, I've always thought Rick's promo work was, was diverse and effective. 
uh, it never was always the exact same thing. Yeah, you get a woo and you'll get a, a sexual innuendo of some sort as occasionally or frequently, whatever. I never thought his work uh, suffered. Steamboat was just not a great promo guy uh, in the sense of, of a uh, uh, charismatic, over-the-top, key term, over-the-top uh, uh, promo guy. That's not his style. It would have come out as very un, un, unnatural and uh, very plastic. So I, didn't, I don't know if I buy into that promo thing. I think that uh, when you have you, – you've got to create an angle – got to create a storyline, uh, when you have two baby faces and that's what you had there. By the time they got to the third match, people were ready for their fate. their the guy that they, their guilty pleasure, the nature boy to win the title back, but you still had two baby faces and unless the two baby faces had a, a personal issue. And, and, and that don't mean folks, well, they're fighting for the title. Meltzer was right about the fact the title was tepid and you couldn't hang your hat just on the title. Uh, it, it had been, it had been changed, uh, and just, uh, just didn't work. It was just, it got cold. So uh, I can see his point on that deal. I think it's more of anything, two baby faces. There should have been a wrinkle added to it. Uh, even the fact that, you know, you, you, you could have even had steamboat do something in a match where, uh, uh, it looked like an, uh, inadvertent low blow, but it really wasn't, but you didn't have the, you didn't have the evidence to prove it. Something along those lines could have happened, but you know, nobody wanted to touch steamboat cause he was so such a pristine baby face and had never been really a heel. He, maybe he has somewhere. I'm sure he has someplace, but nothing of any significance. But I, I, uh, I, I just think that I, like I mentioned earlier, February, uh, then April and then may that's a lot of flare steamboat. And they didn't just go out there and have a, you know, eight or 10 minute match. No. So I don't, maybe it was too much too soon. Maybe it's the right plan, but can we stretch it out a little bit and make this issue a little bit more personal going into, especially that last match where we're going to blow off a flare and steamboat and start up flare and funk. But, uh, that's easy to point out now, right? Conrad and, and in hindsight, but there's, there's, it's just too much too soon. I think even though it was great wrestling. People wanted more. They wanted something fresh. They wanted another ingredient added to the meal. And we didn't give that to them. Let's talk about, uh, something else. Dave Rowe here. He sort of insinuates that Terry Gordy is going to be coming in to reform the Freebirds and possibly feud with the road warriors. Any memories of that? I mean, Gordy coming in to join the Freebirds here in 89, that would have been some pretty hot shit. I mean, great. Gordy was, uh, Gordy's Mac daddy, man. Uh, big time. I've talked to so many guys. Uh, that will tell you that guys I respect are uh, cowboy, Ernie lad, others that said that Terry Gordy was the greatest teenage pro wrestler that they ever saw in their life. So he was always great and just got better. But the fact that we, you know, we wanted to, we'd love to put the, you need a Gordy in the Freebirds, Right. And the Freebirds had great equity. And Michael could still talk as good as anybody in the business, but you needed Gordy in that mix to make it complete, but he was making so much money per week on a part-time basis, essentially, cause you go so many weeks in Japan and come back and then you home for a month or three weeks, five weeks, whatever, go back. He was making huge money over there because 
the Japanese are smart to see that this guy's a star. He's a main event level star. And quite frankly, if you really want to get the money out of Gordy, we, we got close to getting what we thought would be a great deal when we had Gordy and Dr. Death as partners. They were a great team, man. They were awesome. They were a great team in Japan. But Terry Gordy's biggest money may have been as a contender for the title with Michael Hayes as his manager. That to me was magical because there, Michael could talk. I said, Michael could talk. He could, he could do, have all the antics at ringside. He was a very much a strategist, smart guy still is. Uh, and, uh, Hey, if anybody's going to play that Joe exotic, Michael Hayes might be a candidate for that. Yeah. He ain't got to, he ain't got to fix his hair or nothing. I've pitched that. Maybe we should have a six man when he gets out of prison with DDP, Michael Hayes and Joe exotic. <laughs> hey, bro. That's good. Uh, well, but anyway, uh, Gordy to, to me, that would have been another plan looking back at some booking, you know, Gordy, number one contender chasing the title. Can you imagine the matches that flair and Gordy would have had in a hot program for the, for the title? God damn, man. You can't already sit still and eat that. That's just good shit. <laughs> uh, something else in the observer, Brian Pillman's video should start this week and he starts sometime in June. Also headed in will be Norman, the lunatic in mid June and Scott hall, nothing definite yet, but good chance of Ricky Santana. No agreement has been made with Nikita Koloff, but I suspect there will be talks with him as well. So a lot of folks coming in Scott hall, we know going to be a huge star, uh, Norman, the lunatic, you know, had a run for what it was, but Brian Pillman, he's probably one of the guys you were most excited about, huh? Yeah. I, uh, I worked with Stu Hart on, uh, on, uh, Norman, the lunatic, I love the mock and sing, uh, gimmick that he had his persona. I don't know why we couldn't have done that. Norman, the lunatic sucked the, not, not Mike Shaw, right? But the character, it was the shits. Are you supposed to have empathy for the guy? Is he, is he, is he mentally challenged? Uh, what's going on? He, I, he was, it's just an unbelievable character that I couldn't invest in. So I think we screwed up on that deal and it caused Mike Shaw is a good guy, really, really good guy. And, uh, again, a veteran that knew how to be a heel and had no problem uh, making people boo him. But in that cartoonish character, he, he was entertaining. And how do you, I've always said this heels and you, as boys are listening today. And a lot of wrestlers do listen to our show and we appreciate it. If you're a villain. Don't work on your game to make people laugh at you. Don't be funny. I was talking to Jim Cornette. God damn it. I'm a heel. You son of a bitch. Uh, just don't, don't be a car. Don't be a comedian because if you make me laugh and I chuckle, when I see you do things, how can I really dislike you? Right. You just made me laugh. Right. You entertain me. We're, we're swimming. The, we're swimming in opposite directions here. So I, I think that we screwed up there with, with Mike, Mike Shaw and, uh, you know, Scott, Scott had all this upside potential, but for whatever reason, nobody could come up with a consensus on how to book Scott Hall and get the maximum value out of him. And so you look back at how, how do you fix that? JR? Well, here's what I would do guys. I'd go to Scott Hall and say, look, we're going to have a booking meeting next week and I, we want you to come to it. And we want you to come up with some ideas and some opponents 
that you believe you could have great matches with and how we can better position you. So we'll see you next Thursday at the office in Atlanta and uh, we'll go over it. That never happened. I learned that from the cowboy. You got a top guy. You always want your top guys to contribute to their storylines. That's how they, they have, they have skin in the game. They're not going to fall on their ass on one of their own ideas. So that was a, that was bad. It, in hindsight, you know, we all learn a lot over the years and how to address some of these issues, but getting Scott and Scott Hall's, it worked out and Conrad, I know you've heard it many times. Scott Hall's got one of the best minds in all of wrestling. Yeah. He's, he's observant. He's has a great, he has a great, uh, instincts and it just, he, he had it, but nobody asked him to, of course, that's the same old deal. When he got up again, the same, the booking committee with active performers, sometimes want to protect their space outside that booking meeting and having somebody come in, that's going to try to be in the main events. They're going to, you got to move somebody aside. Somebody, if somebody's going to go up, somebody else is going to have to come down. You can't have 10 top guys. Don't work split focus. It's like 50, 50 booking. It doesn't work. So, uh, that, that was the issue on Scott that I can recall. Uh, but he was a, he was, he had a great mind and we could have used that a lot there. No doubt about it. Let's talk about some TV stuff that affects you. Meltzer would write Jim Ross will be moving to worldwide wrestling as the new host with Bob Cottle and Lance Russell doing NWA pro Russell will also team with dangerously on the Sunday TBS show. While it appears Ross won't be doing the Friday night TBS show and they're trying to bring in a new announcer to host that show. What's the rhyme or reason for musical chairs on the shows here? Uh, knee jerks. Just trying to fix things that uh, they had other, that had bigger issues. Uh, they wanted me in syndication. I think Tony was in the, with Tony in WWF that time. Yes. So we lost Tony and you know, Tony was, uh, Tony had been earmarked to be the king of our syndicated broadcast teams, the, the top, the number one guy. And because TVS had it, they, they were given a choice when, uh, you know, Tony and I met with Jack Petrick and Jim heard, uh, about our contracts and somehow or another, uh, I kind of took over the conversation, believe that or not. Cause Tony's in our shows, he said, you know, he went home and told Lois, how kind of raise he got. And, and they said that Jim Ross, a hell of a negotiator. So Tony and I both got more money than we ever made in our lives, you know, nice six figure deals. And uh, when you're making, you know, in like in his case for work, Crockett wasn't paying him hardly anything. So, uh, that was a, a good deal, but then Tony left and you know, they didn't want me everywhere. I couldn't be, you know, too much. So, uh, I, I was still doing Saturday night TBS. I still doing the pay-per-views and now I'm doing worldwide wrestling. So surely we could come up with somebody else to do these one hour on Sunday night on, and on Friday night. And that's what they did. So it was a matter of the perception was Jr. can help us in the syndicated side, uh, on, on worldwide. And, uh, and that was their number one syndicated show worldwide. Because when I went to work for Crockett, uh, Tony Shivani and David Crockett were on worldwide and Bob Coddle and I were on uh, the, the number two show, which was NWA pro at that time. So, uh, and then Bob, of course, went to the commentators, the color analyst role, and I did the play by play. So, uh, but that was the deal there. Just maybe get the, get the perception that Jr. would help us, whether that's true or not, but you know, I did what I needed to do. I did what I was assigned to do. And that was, I think that was a story. Hopefully that move in their perception 
their idea was it would strengthen our syndication a little bit. And whether it did or not, is up to debate. But nonetheless, that was a reasoning that I got. Let's get to the show. Wrestle War. You do commentary with Bob Cottle. You watch the show back for the first time in a long time. How much fun did you have hearing yourself with Bob Cottle? I know he was somebody <laughs> you really looked up to. I love him, man. I, it was so Conrad. It's so good. It's kind of like working with our guys when we were all together with Excalibur and, and Tony and myself doing the commentary for AEW. It's fun. It's not stressful. Everybody shares. Everybody's a pro and, and they're all good people. Then you double that with Bob Cottle. I'd never worked with anybody, a better human being. I never worked any, any walk of life, a better man than Bob Cottle. And he had, he had, he had product knowledge. He still had his instincts. You know, he had that, that voice that people in a lot of regions of the country still identified with because he was a voice of mid Atlantic wrestling forever. And they were getting massive ratings in their local syndication in, uh, throughout the mid-Atlantic territory. So it, it was just wonderful. I, I think about him all the time and you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm just, if this frigging epidemic uh, had not, when it's over, I'm, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to, I'm going to keep my word. I'll get on an airplane and I'm going to fly to Raleigh and I'm going to go to the assisted living facility that, uh, Bob and Jackie Cottle are living in. And I'm going to spend the day with him because I owe him a lot more than that. So, uh, you know, he's just a lovable guy and I just can't tell you how, you know, I first, I saw him at that, uh, my one and only appearance at the, uh, what's the thing on Thanksgiving, the wrestling, Wrestlecade, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I saw him there and I was, I saw him from a distance. This is what he means to me. I saw Bob Collar from a distance sitting in a chair, little Jackie, his wife right there with him. And they had somebody there helping him out. He was signing some autographs. And by the time I walked over to him, we locked eyes. He pulled himself up out of his chair so he could shake my hand and give me a hug. Not even be down sitting in a chair or wheelchair where he was in. And by the time I got there, I was crying like a baby. Just couldn't help myself. I felt like an old fool. But that's, he touched my heart so many times. And it, it, it was an easy transition for me uh, to, go to, to, to go to JCP after buying out Cowboy. It wasn't, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't easy. Uh, it was a lot of heat, you know, there, because a lot of people there looked at me as the guilty party of making the sale happen. And then the other thing is there were people there that they knew that I was going to come to work. So, uh, anyway, it's just uh, good. It's, uh, it was just wonderful. I'm sorry. I diverted there, but no, listen, I know Bob Cottle is important to you and that's what we like to hear. Let's talk about the first match here. It's the great Muda and Doug Gilbert, three minutes and three seconds. Meltzer would say Gilbert was substituting for the junk food dog who simply no showed without calling in. And it appears really is history. This time out, the best guess is JFD would have been asked to do the same job in the same amount of time and didn't come. It was a lot better off that he didn't because Gilbert played his role well and that he kept up with Muto and there were. Uh, able to make sure the awesome spots look good. They did. And Muto wouldn't have even tried them with JFD. Eddie Gilbert came out midway through the match and did a nice spot where it did appear. Muto would do the moonsault. Doug moved and Muto did the flip landing on his face and they or feet. And they quickly went to another spot, basically a squash 
but great while it lasted. It just beams through the words here. Meltzer has fallen in love with the great Muda, but you had too. I mean, he was the next oh, yeah. hot thing, right? Yeah. You know, I, I fell in love with him a lot because he was fresh. He was new. He had a moose set that was unique. He had a great look. And like I told you, when he'd come to the office to pick up his check, when he was living in Atlanta, probably in a Howard Johnson's out there by the airport where a lot of guys lived, that's uh, from my guess, uh, the ladies would, you know, the buzz would come in the room because they thought he was as sexy as hell, and a good looking guy. And he was always friendly and nice and, and polite and very well-mannered classy guy. But I, I, I thought that he's another guy that if he had stolen the title from flair, or if flair was still a heel and, and, and Kenji was a baby face, their chemistry, their matches could have been sensational. It would give Rick a new opponent, a new moose set to deal with and factor into his stuff. So I'm a, I was a big fan of Muda. Unfortunately, my old friend, the junkyard dog. And remember the junk food dog, Melcher calls him, but the junk food dog was me. Right. That, that was Ernie Ladd's nickname for me. Uh, and that would probably because of all the, 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 uh, hitting the, uh, uh, Finnegan. the machines yeah. before while we're playing dominoes all night on Tuesdays. But that, that, that Jay White is really shit in the bed on that one. And, and it didn't, it just wasn't good, man. It was, uh, I felt sorry for him. It was all related to, uh, substance abuse. You know, he wasn't the dog. He was, his mind was going. He, he, he had, he had drug problems. Everybody loved the guy. You couldn't help but love, not love Sylvester Ritter for God's sakes. Right. Magnetic smile, glowing eyes, and just a good dude. But man, it passed him by. He lost his edge. And let me tell you what, what, one of the reasons that was when he worked in mid South, he meaning the, the dog, he had Ernie Ladd as the booker and he had the cowboy as the owner, strong leadership, strong alpha males that knew what they were talking about and had no issues looking any talents eye to eye and telling them what was on, was on their mind. But, uh, he didn't have that after he left mid South. It was the wild west and WWF. He had that first, uh, uh, African-American action figure and they made, he made money and he, he's same old deal, man. He thought the checks would never end and it, and they did. And, and what also ended was, you know, his, his workout regimen. Cause I, I've, I've heard Ernie and cowboy talk about, he'd get a little, he'd get a little heavy and they get on his ass and they get him back in the gym. And he'd be lifting again and doing, you know, he'd get, getting back in, in, in game shape. And then, of course, uh, the, he, ch- he was a chem- changed man whenever he, he left Mid-South with no notice and went to uh, WWF. He got a big break. He made a lot of money. But at the end of the day, nobody, nobody he, he didn't have shit to show for it. If he had stayed in Mid-South, he would have made a lot more money because, or he would have kept a lot more money because Ernie and Bill would have been babysitting him. He didn't have that. He had very little discipline and self-control, but I still love the guy. I still miss him this very day. And that's why he worked so diligently when he got, uh, inducted into the hall of fame in WWE, uh, that we worked really diligently to find his daughter so she could be there. And then of course, then the other thing we did, uh, I think I did this with Ed Kaufman, who was a legal counsel at the time and Vince approved it. We, she got his royalties. And, uh, and cause she, there was a bunch of royalties, uh, in, in, I guess you'd say, uh, escrow. Right. Cause we didn't know who to send the checks to. So we did some, some due diligence there. 
I felt proud to do that as a favorite to the old guy and take care of his daughter best we could. So, uh, but it's sad to see where he, where he fell. It just, you know, where he fell. It's a good, Hey, it's a good lesson for talents. If people watch TV and only see that version of the junkyard dog, you'll never get, you'll never get it. Right. You'll, you'll never get how big he was. And you know, when it, when you, when you're asked who's the most popular athlete in Louisiana, Pete Maravich, Archie, uh, Manning, uh, our, uh, junkyard dog, guess who won that race? JYD. People loved him. Col- every color, every creed, everybody loved JYD. So judge him on his work anyway, on that he never was a great worker, but he had the most amazing natural charisma of any baby face. And the fact that he was an African American baby face pushed to the very, very top because heretofore, most of the promoters all being white will let a African American get to the semi main or, or be a tag champion. Jay, Jay, was the guy. And I think if he had been more reliable, he would, he would have been when he first, not too long after he got to WWF, there's a good chance he would have had a run at, if not succeeding and becoming the champion. But you got Hulk Hogan there, and you ain't going to change that. So, bottom line is, is that uh, it was a sad night. He just no showed, no phone calls, no nothing. And that's he knew that he was in deep water, and he couldn't swim. Let's talk about the next match. It's Butch Reed and Ranger Ross. Shoulder block off the top in six minutes and fifty nine seconds. Meltzer gave it a quarter star. He says there's no heat for the match, although. Uh, Teddy long got a nice pop when he came out to ringside with a notebook that did nothing for the first six minutes. And the most interest in the crowd was mugging for the crowd shots for TV. Uh, the, uh, the last minute was fine. And at least the match didn't go too long. Uh, I like both of these guys. Ranger Ross had a, a gimmick that I guess could have worked once upon a time. And Butch Reed, I think is criminally underrated. Me too. But for whatever reason, this one was just sort of there. Yeah. Well, no story, no backstory, no buildup. And it's the obligatory, uh, uh, Caucasian booking committee, putting two black guys together. Right. It's bad. That's not, you know, yeah. uh, Butch Reed, you're, you're, he's criminally, criminally underrated criminally. Uh, I remember the conversation I had with him with, uh, excuse me, with cowboy and Ernie when dog walked, I said, you, we got our answer right here, but they were both hell bent. And Ernie talked cowboy into, we got to replace dog with another African-American, right? Bad move with a new African-American. It's not the African-American. It's just, a, you, you can't replace the dog with another dog, go a different direction. And, you know, we tried all these guys, your brick house, Brown, George Wells, God, I don't know, a, a litany of other African-American athletes, good, good talents. It's like Vince told me a story one time about replacing Snooka with uh, Sifi Afi. Sifi Afi. Some old school fans will remember him. He had a good run in the North Pacific Northwest at one time. He's a, a you know a, a Polynesian uh, kid, but he was Snooka. He Snooka Light. So fans don't want to pay for Snooka Light, JYD Light. Either give me Snooka or give me Dog or give me something else, but don't give me. Weak imitations of that. Right. And that's where we messed up there because Butch Reed could have stepped right into JYD's shoes because the fans damn sure believed in him. They knew he was a tough son of a bitch and he looked like a million bucks. 
million bucks. So I'm with you, Conrad. That's a good description. Grossly underrated. Next up, Dick Murdoch and Bob Orton in a bull rope match. It gets half a star. They only get four minutes and 54 seconds. Meltzer would say they worked hard on getting this feud over on TV, but there was no heat for the first three minutes until Murdoch took off his boot and started hitting Orton with it. I'm not a great believer in juice because it's been proven. You don't need it. But if you're doing a gimmick, like a bull rope match with a cowbell, you either need the juice or you just really can't do the gimmick. The finish saw Murdoch hog tie Orton and pin him. After the match, Orton and Gary Hart double teamed and hung Murdoch over the ropes. There wasn't even any heat, uh, as they're hanging Murdoch. Nope. Nobody gave a shit. These are and, two and, characters who just don't resonate with the WCW audience in 89. Fair to say. Yeah, it's fair to say, but we could have done a better job in, in getting Murdoch momentum before this whole debacle and getting, uh, Bob Orton momentum. So then both guys got some momentum. They kind of, you kind of set their foundation in WCW and then you shoot your angle when they both got some momentum. They both are have on a streak. They had not 50, 50 book and they're beating people. They're building that momentum. There's so much needed and, but we didn't do that either. So it, they didn't have a fair shake in, in the match coming in, but you could tell, at least I thought maybe I'm wrong just by watching it back. Uh, even though God, they were working hard, I seen both guys do a lot more and do a lot better. It was, I don't want to say they were going through the motions because that would not be fair, but if they weren't going through the motions, they were damn sure on the cusp because they, they weren't happy with their position. They weren't happy with their money. And I, cause I've seen Murdoch uh, more than I have seen Bobby Orton, uh, in person. And I know Murdoch could be great, Yeah, but he could also be shimp for the three stooges. Not even a Mo or Curly shimp because he liked that shit. And so I, I just, it just, that match could have not been booked and it been, it's four minutes and 54 seconds. So let's do something else. And we didn't do those guys any favor with a poor ass booking with no buildup. And then in a gimmick match that needed blood and didn't have any, just what are we thinking here? Let's talk a little bit about the next match. It's dynamic dudes. Shane Douglas and Johnny Ace getting an upset win over the Samoan SWAT team in 11 minutes and two seconds. It gets two and three quarter stars. Um, Meltzer was a super fan of the Samoan SWAT team. I thought the match was okay, but I'll be honest, I didn't really like either gimmick, so to speak. Uh, I was never a huge fan of the SSTs and the dynamic dudes were just a monumental miss, I think, for everybody. I had a hard time getting into this one, but apparently I was uh, a little biased because Meltzer liked it two and three quarters. What'd you think? I thought it was probably as good an outing that the dynamic dudes could have had. I thought that it, uh, showed the, uh, professionalism of the Samoan SWAT team, uh, to put them over. Um, but I think pretty much everybody saw that it was going to be an uphill battle getting the dudes over, uh, you know, I, and that we were Shane Douglas. I always thought Shane Douglas had a great upside. You know, he got screwed around in WWF as Dean Douglas. Uh, he wasn't a good cultural fit. Apparently, uh, some of his peers did not uh, want to be around him and like him for whatever reasons. Uh, but anyhow, it was a challenging thing to get those guys over the dynamic dudes I'm referring to, but that was a good outing for them. They got a much needed win. 
they were going straight to hell if they had got a win there. New guys, new gimmick. Are we like it? Do we not like it? Are they baby faces? Are they trying too hard? You know, what about the skateboard? What's what's all this shit? Uh, you know, so I, 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 they needed that win and hats off to SST for putting them over. But I, I never thought that I never thought that any place we were at, I was at that Shane Douglas got pushed to his potential. I guess the best run he had was working for Heyman in ECW, but he's a good hand, man. He was a good hand, but he got a booking. He got national exposure. We just had a wrong, the wrong gimmick on those guys. And uh, they just didn't compliment each other real well. He, Laurinaitis and, uh, and Shane. So I don't know if that's anybody's fault. It's just, sometimes you just don't have chemistry people. Next up, we get the Oak Ridge boys. They play for 24 and a half minutes. They're from Nashville. They're not booed, but they're not met with much enthusiasm either. According to Dave Meltzer, he says it was a polite response and that's about it. The lobby was packed during the concert as well. From what I saw, they were good, but it isn't like anyone came to see them. It was wasted money. And I sure would have rather seen a few more minutes of good wrestling, but this was hardly a Piper's pit or run DMC disaster. I guarantee having the Oak Ridge boys and promoting them as heavy as they did cost them more pay-per-view buys than it added. I know of several people who didn't buy the show specifically because they were afraid of spending money to see a country concert and didn't know even one person who bought the show to see the Oak Ridge boys. So Meltzer a Californian, obviously not a big Oak Ridge boy fan. I get that. I have to admit as a wrestling fan, this wouldn't interest me either. I know a few times over the years, you guys would have songs performed on raw or on a WrestleMania. I wasn't into that either. I just don't think wrestling and music mix. And this seems like another example of it. What say you, Jim? Yeah, I can see that. There was, you know, they had Elvira's a big hit, right? And, and they, they sang that that was the number one song in the country, even across over some pop charts, but, uh, it was a niche booking. We didn't need it. I don't know whose idea it was. Certainly didn't come from the booking committee. Uh, but somebody in, you know, that may be, that was a, that was a, a good example of how much help we got from WCW. They had the idea I'm, I'm thinking. Uh, you need, they need something, maybe a musical act, right? maybe somebody from Nashville that would draw a lot of people or whatever, and get a lot of publicity. It would have got us a lot of publicity. If you'd have promoted it, if you had them on CNN or, Hey, you guys going to get in the ring or what's going to go on, you know, you know, what, what's happening here, something, nothing, we got nothing, but, uh, in hindsight, we didn't need the Oak Ridge boys and they were, they were very good. They were very good. And everybody liked Elvira. So. But you know, you can't listen to Elvira for 24 and a half minutes. That'd be like the long version of, uh, of, uh, uh, oh God, uh, my favorite song from the Eagles hotel, California. I could listen to that for 24 and a half minutes, maybe a little chocolate cake. Beat up. <laughs> well, I feel like there was some chocolate cake involved in the next match. It's Lex Luger. Defending his United States title against Michael Hayes. Let me give you the backstory on the March 18th edition of world championship wrestling. Luger and Hayes wrestled Barry and Kendall Wyndham in a tag match. Hayes turns on Luger and allows Barry and Kendall to win the match and then joins hero Matsuda's group. And on the May 7th edition of world championship wrestling, it's announced that 
Luger is going to defend the United States championship against Hayes at wrestle war. They get 16 minutes and six seconds. It gets three stars. I can't believe this is real. A three-star match with Michael Hayes and Lex Luger and son of a bitch. Michael Hayes is the U S champion. Can you believe it? Yeah, it was, I wouldn't believe it until I saw it, but they were going to beat Luger, but you know, Luger is up and down sometimes and again on the booking committee. You have guys that, uh, you know, they're, they're, how long can we live on Lex's potential? Right. Patients are running thin and at least it was a, it was a little bit of a curveball in the show. Uh, you know, there was Luger got a good out, uh, you know, they had the, you know, Terry Gordy was involved. And so you'd be protected the baby face in that respect, but it was a little bit of an off speed pitch that people were probably looking for the heat. And they came, we came with the off speed, they had no problem with it. And they did have a surprisingly good match because Hayes called the match and kept it within the wheelhouse of what Luger could do somewhat well, but, uh, it was a surprise I'm sure to the audience and, and, uh, but I had no problem with it quite frankly. And, and I was pleasantly surprised with how good a match those guys had. Yeah. Meltzer loved it. 16 minutes and six seconds, but you would think Michael Hayes and Lex Luger in a singles match for 16 minutes would not be what you're going to get here. But he would say this match had the most baby face slash heel heat of any other match on the show during the weekend. They mainly milked the heat early. The highlight was Luger missing a cross body block and sailing over the top rope. Hayes then took over with a bulldog and hero ran Luger's head into the guardrail. Hayes mainly held chin locks until Luger started his comeback by throwing off Hayes as he tried to bulldog at the uh, 14 minute mark. After a clothesline and three press slams, Luger goes for the torture rack. Hayes reverses the move and hits the DDT in a surprisingly awesome spot. Then came the worst ref bump in history. Nick Patrick was never even touched in a sloppy looking collision. Terry Gordy then pushed Hayes on top of Luger, whose legs were in the ropes and the pinfall is counted. So Gordy is here and son of a bitch, Michael Hayes, us champ. Yeah. Good way to get a little spotlight on Terry, who we thought was coming in. Uh, and it got Michael a title again, the heel cheating to win, getting the unfair advantage because everybody knew if they meet again on a level playing field without Gordy's interference, etc., that, uh, Lex was going to win the title back. That's kind of the concept that you look for. And, and lo and behold, 15 days later, guess what happens? Right. Lex won the title back. Another illustration of what the booking. So Hayes had a very distinguished 15 day run. It's, it's almost comical to phrase it like that. What can you get over? What can get established? How, how, how deep can the roots go in 15 days? Yeah. We're flipping well, it to flip it at this point. Yeah. It's silly. Irrelevant irrelevance. And it, and the title was again, like all of our titles at that time, they weren't where we all wanted them to be. Even the guys that held the titles wanted them to be better, but that's the reason. One of the reasons that the titles are so, uh, that we, we, we outbooked ourselves. There's gotta be some, some sort of a tenure in this thing, Conrad, you know, just title change. The second title change is like, to me, it's the same sin of having a DQ finish because you can't come up with a finish that makes everybody happy. And whatever you got to do, you got to make everybody happy. 
So even though the winners don't get paid any more than the losers, you still got to babysit. You got to work with these egos. So I, I thought that if you're going to put the title on Hayes, he's a perfect chicken shit heel that cheats to win, gains unfair advantages, and on a, on a good night, will lose the damn title. And I'm going to pay to go see it. But again, 15 days. Hell, the time he had his title win to his title loss, I'm sure there are fans that we had that didn't even know that any of those things happened because the ratings are damn, so damn bad that a lot of folks are not watching. So I don't know. I, I, I think that, uh, I don't think it was a bad move, but what was a bad move was 15 days later to, to, un, to undo it. Didn't make any sense. Next up, we've got sting. He's going to defend his television title against the iron Sheik, making him submit to the scorpion. Meltzer would say the match went exactly as it should have, which is the best thing you can say about it. Gave it a dud rating. It only goes two minutes and 12 seconds. And, uh, the iron Sheik in WCW feels like a mistake. And Jim Cornette has gone on record as saying it kind of was, he says, there's a story around the same time where the iron Sheik was so bad that they send him home, but they sort of forget about him because he's home and his contract automatically renews. It just rolled over because they forgot. So he's up for another hundred grand a year. And now they're just going to bring him in just to do these very fast jobs, hoping he'd quit, which of course he didn't do. And the two minute squash matches were still so bad. They send him back home again. So he got to sit home for two years and paid <laughs> to not come to work. This is uh, sort of like what you hear about with some famous NFL or college coaches where, Hey, you're fired, but we're still going to keep paying you. Just you're so bad at your job. Stop doing what you're doing and we'll pay you to never do it again. <laughs> and that's what WCW is doing here with the iron cheek. Are they not? Yeah, exactly. Uh, bad air and bookkeeping, the record keeping the, all that front office stuff was not being ad addressed And the left hand. Didn't know what the right hand was doing. There was no, no really good logical system in place or that would never have happened. You know, you always get a notice, you know, when I, when I was in WWE, uh, in talent relations, you know, I always knew. Uh, cause I had it in my briefcase every day. I knew I had a document that told me everybody's year to date earnings and everybody's contract end date. And generally, if we wanted to keep you, I would start negotiating with you. No, at least dialogue, no less than a year out. And because we start the conversation. So you hope the conversation is ramped up by the time you're in the, the six months mark, uh, that you know, things, things have got back on an even keel and you, you're, you're going to, you come to basic, a, a verbal agreement of what you're going to do on the next contract. And sometimes I've even been, if a guy was on the upper tick, you just, I said, you just tear up his contract. You ain't got it. We're not going to do this last six months at this rate. I'm going to give you a new contract at this rate, up rate. And that generally made guys happy. So, uh, but there was no system in place there in WCW at that time. In a lot of areas, but that's a, that was a key one. That was 200 grand wasted. Uh, but nobody seemed to, it didn't, it didn't change the course of time. And you know, they had the money, but it's still a silly, a silly investment. You know, Cosgrove was such a, was a good guy. He's pride and, you know, he, he, he had a rough, uh, Cosgrove discovered drugs. Right. When I first met him, he weighed 185 pounds and he was the cleanest, cleanest living guy you'd ever meet. And he, he was riding with Hodge. 
Danny Hodge and Hodge rarely had a drink, didn't smoke, didn't do any drugs. I had, I seen him have a beer on a hot night or something, but that's about it. So he was traveling with Hodge back in those Leroy McGurk era days. Cause we got, we got Cosgrove from Bernganya from the AWA camp. And he was as clean living as you can imagine. Then all of a sudden, you know, he, he goes up North and there's again, the lack of institutional control or the leadership and, uh, and, and, and he, he fell off the wagon or whatever you want to say, he fell under the wagon and it, it, he was a changed man. Now, the last time I saw Cosgrove, the good news of the story is the last time I saw him, he was str- sober, coherent, and, and had a, and, and was able to carry on a very good constructive conversation. Uh, I took pictures of his family and him and he's a lovable guy, but he just got off in a, in a bad path that he couldn't handle uncharted waters for him. And so but when he came to WCW, he was living there in Atlanta. He'd gone through a lot of his money. So of course he's not going to, you, you can beat him every night if you want to, as long as he gets that, uh, two grand a week. Pretty remarkable that they couldn't find any money to pay Tom Pritchard, but Hey, we got plenty of money to just throw away on the iron sheet. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get a lot of, a lot of inconsistencies, a lot of inconsistencies. Again, people can hate McMahon all they want, but he had a, he, he, he was, he was the, uh, uh, the king of his domain and he had product knowledge and he had a system in place so that things like this wouldn't occur. The only thing that occurred negatively for us and on my run there was the Jeff Jarrett deal, uh, the contract thing where he had to, you know, we, I write about that in, in under the black hat somewhat extensively. Uh, and that was not a good day at the office for me, <clears throat> but, but the bottom line was that, uh, it was just, a, it was, a, it was, a, it was, it was almost embarrassing. Nobody talked about it very much. It's just really embarrassing that, that we as a group, whether you're directly involved in that aspect of the group or not, that it happened on our watch. And that was goddamn humiliating. Let's, uh, let's talk about our main event. It's not the last match on the card, but it is the real main event. Ricky steamboat defending the world title against Ric Flair. It's the third match, the rubber match, the final one between the two here in 89. As a reminder, Chi-Town rumble steamboat goes over flair to win the title. Uh, fast forward clash of the champions is two out of three falls again, steamboat wins. But it's apparent that Flair's foot was on the bottom rope. So here's the rematch. Uh, they get plenty of time, 31 minutes and 37 seconds. Meltzer absolutely loves it. Uh, he gives it a tremendous rating. Uh, and he writes, it was all there outstanding ring entrances, but did they really need to hire the entire modeling agency? They opened up by trading spots that you had to see to believe, uh, sorry, chops. The first 17 minutes was spent doing an occasional awesome spot. Intersped with steamboat doing arm drags and working the left arm. The work was super stiff to the point. It was mind boggling from the 17 minute mark on. This is the best match I've ever seen live in this country. So it's pretty remarkable that these guys had such incredible matches already. And somehow this one raises the bar even greater. Um, what'd you think? You watched this one back for the first time in a long time of the three. Which is your favorite, Chicago, New Orleans, or Nashville? Uh, Chicago was uh, going to be hard to beat for me because, uh, you know, I told that story that uh, I didn't know what the finish in Chicago was going to be until 
George Scott, who was booking at that time, pulled me off the side as I was walking to the announce position and said, we're going to change the belt tonight. And I felt so deflated. I just didn't want to know that. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't agree with it, it didn't, but I, I wanted to be surprised. And so, uh, but I thought that was a, an amazing, uh, match. So Chicago might be my second favorite, the timing issues and the two out of three faller and the empty Superdome would have been the third match, but this one's my favorite because it had everything that Meltzer's laying out. The match itself was, a, was artwork. Again, if talents are listening to this show, and again, we thank you for that. And you want to look at something that's look at transitions, look at going from, from moose set to moose set to go from looking at chain wrestling, uh, physical wrestling, every aspect of the psychological warfare and the intense physicality in a pro wrestling match. This is one that if you haven't seen it, just because it's 1989, uh, don't think everybody's wearing, you know, wool tights and, and low cut boots. This son of a bitch was, will, will stand the test of time. And I've gotten some very good debates with people about, you know, they can't believe that I don't automatically sign off that Omega and Okada's three matches were so much better than flair and steamboat. It's not even funny. Uh, to that, I say bullshit it was the, the Omega and Okada matches were phenomenal. They really were, but they didn't happen over a span of, uh, four months or five months. It was drawn out. It let it build. It let it take roots. It was good booking. We rushed our shit and that match was rushed, but the delivery was in- incomparable. So if you get a chance to watch that folks, look at all the little nuances, look at how they got from one point A to point B, look how all the dots are connected and then going into a believable finish at the end of the day, still with steamboat who thought he was going to get some return matches out of this deal, which didn't happen, but the finish was structured to give Ricky some protection as well, but then put the title back on flair, which we started a whole new chapter in Ric Flair's life and career, uh, in the post-match. Really remarkable. Meltzer would say five stars doesn't do this entire scenario justice. The match itself was a better match live than in Chicago. And most that I've talked with who saw the pay-per-view felt it was the best of their three national matches. Although some still opted for new Orleans as being the best. Uh, of course the post-match is just remarkable. Uh, the, the angle here of course is they had funk at ringside. He's one of the judges. Uh, he's going to come in and ask for a title shot. Uh, Flair is going to dismiss him in a friendly way and say, well, you know, you got to earn a shot and we have rankings here. Of course, Funk gets pissed off, attacks him, uh, the huge angle, including a pile driver on the table. They stretch your flare out. He's in bad shape. He's going to be injured and out of action until the June 14th, uh, clash of the champions. And, um, it's interesting to see what they're building towards here. The next big pay-per-view, uh, will be, uh, Baltimore, great American bash. And it's of course, flair funk. And then we're going to blow it off in December at New York knockout or clash of the champions. But what a time for Ric Flair to transition from one of his all time greatest trilogies to maybe one of his greatest opponents here with Terry funk. I mean, most would agree Terry Ricky steamboat was his greatest opponent, but a totally different style of match, but just as compelling with Terry funk. Would you agree? Yeah. Uh, it was different styles. The old styles make fights and all that good stuff that people like to talk about. Uh, it, it, the compare steamboat and Terry funk is like, you know, uh, 
preparing or comparing a, a fillet and a to another premium cut of meat. It's just this protein, but it's a different taste. It's a different it's a different presentation. And uh, I I thought that uh, I was a little unnerved in that post match because. You know, I, it's not like in back in the WWE days where you have writers and you have these guys, here's your script and you should say this, and here's the bullet points or I never saw any of that stuff. I didn't have any, I knew they were going to shoot an angle. It's the old deal. And we're going to, we're going to, JR, get in, you're going to interview flair and then Terry's going to come in the ring. We're going to do a little business. That's kind of what you got. We're going to do some business. Okay. As long as I'm not getting bumped around, so I got to be in the right place at the right time. That's pretty much all I need to know. So, but Terry was so, uh, believable. It was like, he was middle-aged and crazy. It's like, you know, he's, he's, a he's having a blackout or something. He's, he's, he's not coherent. This is scary because he was that good. And so then they did their thing and, you know, nobody said, Hey, well, that spotted tonight when, when, when flair gets power driven through the table, nobody talked about that because nobody knew it was going to happen. So it was, uh, spont- good, spontaneous stuff and, uh, unnerving because it was so real. It was so real. It's like Terry was in a desperate state. I got a challenge. I'm, I'm 45 or whatever he was. And I, I, I'm not gonna get a lot of these chances. This is a prime opportunity for me to make flair defend the title against me. He'll have to, he'll, he'll want retribution after what I'm going to do to him. And it's almost like Terry was, you know, a little on the edge of a, like a nervous breakdown or something. He was that good at his, at his role. And to think that talents could do that without writers, without, uh, you know, somebody telling them what to say is, a, is a absolutely amazing how good Terry Funk was. And of course, Nate's they're sparring, verbally sparring and Nate's blew it off real well, played kind of the low key baby face type thing, you know, and. He didn't get, he didn't start screaming at Terry and, you know, I'm Ric Flair. You know who I am and all that. He handled it perfectly. So it was a really a neat deal. And one the, for me, it worked because I wasn't smartened up to what all was going to happen. Even as the announcer, even in the ring, holding the microphone between two of the greatest of all time. For me to look back on my career, at it's seminal moments. That's one of them. And, and- standing there, standing there, Conrad. With a sweaty new champion, had been through war. Then you got middle-aged and crazy Terry Funk in his tuxedo after leaving his seat next to Pat O'Connor and Luthez. Pretty impressive panel, by the way. And then uh, getting in the ring and doing his thing was—I don't know—is just it was surreal. But uh, that was a big honor for me to even be standing there between those two dudes. And I still look at back—I look back at it today. Thank God we're all still alive. Knock on wood again. And, uh, maybe someday the three of us will get together and have a little, have us a cold beer and talk about that. But I, I, but I, I loved every minute of it. It was just great. It was hardcore. It was, it was, it was, it was coarse. It was unrehearsed. It was real as real can get in that respect. So when you go back and watch it, folks, understand all those things. There was no big rehearsal in the afternoon. There was no walkthrough. There's no writers and little clipboards hanging around. It was two pros that knew the direction they were going to travel. They didn't know the exact route route to take, but they knew their destination and the route was going to be determined on when the trip got started. 
In other words, we're going to call it as we go. And they did. And it was artwork. I feel like we should mention right here that, uh, this is pretty subtle, but coming into this flares, the bad guy steamboats, the good guy. When it's over with though, the crowd is almost 50, 50. They're, they're sort of pulling for Rick and man, it is cemented that Rick flares, the good guy. When Terry Funk brutally attacks him like this, I mean, he's been like one of the more prolific heels in wrestling for years at this point, Rick flair. I mean, yep. and now to, to turn him, it takes the crazy bastard, the middle-aged and crazy Rick, <laughs> uh, Terry Funk, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Great chemistry timing. So important in everything we do in life, but timing, the timing of that whole moment to, 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 to recapture the magic that is Terry Funk to pair Terry Funk with Ric Flair. And, and it was it just, it was great booking. That was really great booking, but the great booking always starts with the talents you're booking, you're utilizing. And how can you get any better than that? The classic heel, great promos, easy to dislike within his TV persona. And then arguably the greatest in-ring performer of all time who people loved, respected. He was time honored. He was tenured. Uh, so it was, everything came together. Uh, and, and quite frankly, both those guys had a lot of similar qualities as far as length of career, success, championships, NWA titles, all those things. So, uh, I, I, I loved it. You know, when I go back, go back and watch it. I was in awe of, first of all, how steamboat and, and Rick executed their match to set the table for the angle. And, and as I understand it, I don't think steamboat even knew what they were going to do. I think, you know, he was going to the other match. He's going to go. He's going to do the honors. Flair's going to give him some accolades, raise his hand, hug, whatever. And then Ricky was going to, you know, ease his way out of the scene. JR gets in the ring to interview Flair. Here comes Funk to, to quote unquote, do some business. And brother, they did some business. Yes, they did. And I'm glad you brought up the Ricky Steamboat thing because he's gone on record as saying, I looked back in the ring after our match and they've got another thing going on. No one told me this was going to happen. I was awestruck. I just dropped the title to flair and I thought it would at least warrant one more series of matches to see if I could get it back. I didn't care if I won or not. I never did. Just wanted to work with Rick again. Instead, they went right into another angle and it's worth mentioning. They're very quickly going to set him up with, uh, Lex Luger. And after the great American bash in July, steamboats out of here. Uh, how hurt do you think steamboat was? Do you think that he finally felt like, man, I'm finally getting my just due. I'm finally getting a push because I think if memory serves, he left and went to the WWF years prior because he felt like dusty Rhodes was not going to push him and instead was going to favor Magnum TA and the like. And now fast forward a few years, he's back and he probably thinks, okay, here's my shot. I'm finally in the main events. I'm working with Rick. We have great matches. We love working with each other. I'm the world champ. And now I'm not figured into that top spot anymore. Was that pretty devastating for Ricky? Did you know that he was unhappy in this time or what can you tell us about Ricky's sort of state of mind here? I think Ricky had, uh, was having, he, I'm not mistaken, Conrad. I think Ricky had some, had kind of a tumultuous, uh, uh, marriage. Yeah. And I think that, uh, that was probably his biggest cause of consternation, but to not be informed uh, of what was going on after you're losing the world title, uh, was disrespectful. 
And that's how I perceive Ricky felt, uh, how much disrespect we didn't know because, you know, again, in my role as a broadcaster, I tried to stay away from all that stuff. I didn't need or want that extra information. So how I didn't know that, uh, heck I didn't have a clue that, you know, she was going to, that he was going to do that. You know, I, he didn't have a clue. I didn't, I didn't have a clue. Nobody knew. So I can see where Ricky kind of felt like he was kayfabe on that deal. And you don't do that to your champion because earlier in the day, when all that had been discussed, he was the world champion, but he wasn't treated like a world champion. Sometimes Ricky's was too nice, but he had he, enough was enough. And, and we lost a really good talent. When you, when you lose a Ricky steamboat from your, from your batting lineup, your, your roster, that shit ain't good, buddy. So again, it's just, it was unfortunate. It's, I felt so bad for Ricky steamboat because he had not done anything that would merit that sort of treatment. Right. It was a great illustration, Conrad, a piss poor communication. And, and again, um, you, you can tell by my discussions, and this is not an indictment on anybody on the booking committee, but booking committees in general don't work in general, do not work because there's not that one discernible, legible voice that would, uh, that can make that final, final decision. And so then if you, if you, so then in our situation, that booking committee, uh, you would have, well, the final decision at the end of the day is going to be Jim Hurd. So where now, where are you? It just was a, it was a system that was not built to succeed or to generate additional profits and revenues. This wasn't, but steamboat situation was, it was, it was just, a. it's almost embarrassing to think about in those regards. He's there all day, you know, somewhere along the, along the way, these, that these issues are being discussed in small little groups of maybe two or three people, but you got to believe that you're going to tell steamboat, Hey, here's what we're going to do. He knew he was dropping a title when he got there. That was not a surprise. But the other stuff, uh, really shit on the, on the, it, it just, you just moved on. Now I know new Japan does this a lot, right? They have angles and then they, they, they quote unquote, blow it off. And then they have another guy come out and challenge and they start another story. So that's not unusual, but I think you, you certainly want to communicate with your talent, what you're going to do. And Ricky didn't get that opportunity to be, to be informed. Not good. Not good indeed, but we know we're in for a real treat. Um, let's keep going. This is not the last match on the card. Unbelievably. Uh, the next one is for the world tag team titles is the road warriors challenging the champs, Steve Williams and Mike Rotunda. Uh, they go, uh, six minutes and six seconds road warriors get the win by DQ. Uh, this one was just sort of there. It, it definitely, um, after the big high you're on of the world title, it's, it's really hard to move on, but. Uh, I like to see clean finishes on pay-per-view. Unfortunately, this is not one of them, but this mm-hmm. is some of your favorites, Dr. Death, Mike Rotunda, the road warriors. You grew up with these guys in the biz. What'd you think watching it back this time, uh, for the first time in what? 30 years had a lot of potential, you know, time restraints, uh, didn't do them any favors, but you can see that there was a little bit of magic there. And a lot of that was because <clears throat> we're here to four. Uh, in that era, the road warriors were very dominating, physically dominating, and, uh, therefore they were very intimidating to some teams. 
and they knew the road warriors had influenced all these younger teams, but they did the road warriors hawking down, but didn't take any liberties or, or flex their muscles on doc or rotunda because that would not have been a smart move because both guys, doc and rotunda are great amateurs, big, strong guys, athletes, two sport athletes at, at, at D one schools, rotunda at Syracuse, Dr. Death at Oklahoma. They had the background to take care of themselves. So there was a mutual respect of tough alpha males in that ring. But you can see where the varsity club and the road warriors could have had a really good long-term program. But when you got to work around, how do we book the road warriors to keep them strong? If we beat them, which is one of the dumbest goddamn philosophies, the road warriors are better workers than that. And so nobody gave them credit. All their muscle heads, they're just gimmicks. And, you know, tell them, I'll tell them, I don't tell them. You tell them, no, you tell them. Come on. It's, it's just, uh, it was a short match that you could see great potential in, but why <clears throat> we had to have a DQ in six minutes still is a little bit of a head scratcher. Our last, we should mention as a result of this, they're going to start a tournament to crown new tag team champions. Eventually the Freebirds, Michael Hayes and Jimmy jam. They're going to win it. Uh, our last match though, is for the U S tag team titles. It's Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner retaining over Sullivan and Spivey. They go six minutes, 41 seconds. Uh, it gets two and a half stars. Um, Meltzer would say Steiner tore his bicep two nights earlier in Montgomery and had been told there was no way he could work this match and not work it for at least one month. But yet there he was the heels immediately attacked Steiner and posted his bad arm and Spivey gave him a shoulder breaker and basically rendered him helpless. Gilbert worked the entire match, mainly just getting destroyed by Spivey. The finish saw Steiner clothesline Sullivan with his good arm as Sullivan was about to pile drive Gilbert. Gilbert falls on top for the pin. This was good, except by this time, the crowd had seen so much that they couldn't get any heat at all. After the uh, bout, the heels worked on Steiner's arm some more and he got pummeled and wound up with a bloody nose. There was a specific directive from TBS against the usage of blood, but this was unplanned juice. As they say, mm. two and a half stars. What'd you think? Not bad, especially considering, uh, the position on the card and where they were as the night progressed. You're, you're the very last thing of a, uh, three hour pay-per-view and you're not the main event. So, uh, and following flair and steamboat and funk and Wagner, no, but you know, the power driver on the table, that was a new spot. Then, you know, now you can see guys going through tables of the Dudleys, a great tag team above and Devon, they made a living off those tables. And now, you know, guys use tables for high spots. Like they use DDTs, Canadian destroyers for high spots, which is fucking repulsive. If I was, if I had the pencil Conrad and used a goddamn DDT as a transition spot or, or the Canadian destroyer, guess what you lose? You lose your goddamn push <laughs> because you're an idiot. So really seriously, it was where they were on the card was, uh, un, what's the word I'm looking for? Unattainable. Couldn't get there. Right. You can't get there from here. You ever got, you ever stopped asked for directions? Well, you can't get there from here. Uh, that's kind of that deal. But I thought, Hey, I loved Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner together. Eddie really helped Steiner's personality, uh, come out, which was good. It just hadn't been exposed. Uh, really, really good. And, uh, 
So with the tough spot they were in, you know, I don't know how that could have been great, but to have the match they had in six in less than seven minutes was a pretty damn good accomplishment when you think about it. So that hats off to, you know, dangerous Dan, the left-hand man, Spivey and the, and the, and the little devil, Kevin Sullivan, they, they did their share too. Let's talk about, um, what Meltzer sort of wrapped up the pay-per-view with. He says there was a definite mood about this place. That was day one of the new beginning of the NWA. Maybe yes, maybe no. From a booking standpoint, this was the best book pay-per-view show thus far. I can't judge the overall production, announcing, etc., but they've got nothing but praise from those I've talked with. The wrestling was basically good with a super main event. They came out with several new angles for the summer, and there is more of the same to come over the next two months. However, this isn't like the first good show the NWA has put on as of late. Every big show since Starcade has been a good show. The problem isn't putting on good shows. While booking has been a major problem in the past, it wasn't the major problem. The problems are positioning on television, syndicated TV, and public perception of the product. Great pay-per-view telecasts and great house shows won't change those problems. And my feeling is that the real turnaround can't take place until those problems are dealt with. Sure, Flair's a baby face will get a great pop and super heat in the houses, particularly with a heel with the knowledge and ability of Terry Funk. But the television interviews between the two may very well exceed those that Randy Savage has been doing. But if you're not watching TV and the promotion of the house show stays the way it's been, they may do a great product and have great matches that won't result in great money. So he's still sort of negative as far as the outcome. And we know it's not really going to pull the nose up for several more years in WCW, but shows like this, where you have such a tremendous main event and so much talent, it does sort of make you scratch your head and say, God damn, what could they have done? Yeah, if the if the company had been committed in the early days uh, in uh, WCW and had a better leader that could could enjoin and embrace and recruit and, and endear himself and the division to the other Turner executives, uh, things could have been a lot different as well. I think I mentioned earlier the accolades to Eric for getting the uh, company uh, in tune with everything. I think at some point Eric came along at the right place at the right time because not that he wasn't going to do a good job. He's very bright, but the fact that they had the WCW people, the management Turner more specifically were so fucking tired of the shit that we, they were enduring. They had just enough product knowledge to know that things were not right. But the main thing they had was they had data. They had, they had house show receipts. They had ticket sales. They had pay-per-views. They had TV ratings. They had quarter hour ratings. They had minute by minute ratings that every measurable that any TV entity could have. And I think finally they said, well, let's try this. And Eric made a great presentation and he, and he did a hell of a job. So I, my hat's off to the, the host of 83 weeks that you can hear on the Podfathers network every Monday. Come there again. I'm plugging everybody else's deal. You remember that? Remember telling you about that? I do. You think they're going to plug my shit? No, because they don't want me to have a goddamn push. Son of the bitches. <laughs> they're jealous. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> well, you know what? They are jealous that you've got one of the best sellers around. We've, uh, we've played some, some, uh, audio clips. Your, your, your regular book is not just available. You can get an autograph book from your website and now the fucking audio book is out. There are so many ways to enjoy you these days. JR. Oh, thank you so much, Conrad. You're so nice to me since the baby got here. Uh, 
the, uh, yeah, eBooks. You ain't got to leave your house. We'll take care of it. JRSBBQ.com. And you know what's got hot lately? What's that? Barbecue sauce. Really? Grilling season, man. Let's do it, baby. Grilling season. So, uh, JRSBBQ.com is the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, hustling here now, uh, panhandling, but seriously, the, uh, just off our little website, I signed, we sold and I signed 2000 books and, and, and we get 25, 30 orders a day. So the book's doing very well considering this virus has the, the front door shut of a lot of Barnes and Noble. So you just got to make the best of what you do, right? You just, this is the hand we got. So let's adjust. So it's good. I appreciate everybody's support on it seriously. And, and, uh, so it's all working out good, but I, I did think Eric did a great job there. He convinced the right people in Turner to open up their, their purses and their strings, the strings of their purses, whatever I'm trying to say, and, uh, and get behind this brand. And when they did and his hiring of these big stars that have become famous that they all used to drool over, like especially Hogan and then Hall and Nash. Uh, for sure that then that, that made that gave the, the company confidence that we're not building around, uh, a washed up uh, iron sheik or, or, or a junkyard dog that no shows when he wants to, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it was a, it was an interesting thing there, but there's no telling how good WCW could have been if they had one guy in charge and that new wrestling and new psychology and understood how to work with talent and motivate talent. We didn't have that. And we didn't have that. You know, then after Heard left, who was there? Kit Fry, nicest guy in the world. You know, he loved Duke basketball, nice attorney from Duke, smart dude, but didn't know, come here from Sickle about wrestling. And then the cowboy comes in and starts, you know, he's a bull in China closet. He wants to go back to the seventies and eighties in some, in some respects. And some of his ideas are actually good ones, but they weren't very, very well received because he didn't want to, he, he, he liked to confront. He wasn't a big, he didn't, he wasn't so crazy about conversing, but you get him in a nice confrontation. He's, he's down with that baby. So, you know, it was just leadership is the key thing. That's why I like the, our chances in AEW. Tony Khan's a different kind of leader, right? Mid mid thirties. He's hip. He's smart. He, he's a, he's knowledgeable and he, and, and even though something might not be his idea, he has no problem putting things on television that are, that are not his idea. And, uh, that's very rare in the booking area because everybody's so goddamn insecure that they seem like if it's not my idea, it's not a good idea, which is absolutely insanity. Well, what else is insanity is that we've got even more stuff coming your way next week. I'm really excited. We're going to uh, honor one of your great friends. I think everybody listening to this knows Dr. Death, Steve Williams. It's coming your way next week. I'm really excited about this because believe it or not, we're getting to cover it on his birthday. Uh, yeah, he was great. still with us. This would have been a, this would have been a big one. I think he would have been uh 60 years old, right? Yep. Yeah. What a, what a guy, what a guy, great friend, like a little brother to me and a cousin or something. But, you know, we, we hired him. We'll talk about this at length, but we cowboy hired him, uh, through the recommendation of the wrestling coach at OU, Stan Abel, uh, doc was a starter in the football team four years. And then he's a four-time wrestling all American. So he, he's a two sport guy in a legitimate way at a real school that did 
played big time football and had a big time wrestling program, especially at that time. Uh, but he, he was signed, uh, between his junior and senior year. He had another year of eligibility left. And do you think that, uh, the conversation that doc had with cowboy about maybe I won't go back and I'll just wrestle because this is what I'm going to do when I get out of school that, that went over like a fart in church because cowboy was an OU alum. He was going to have doc not being all American four times. Ain't many of those. And he wasn't going to have him, uh, be, he's a captain of the football team, offensive guard, number 76 and, and not go back out for football. Cause that would have pissed off Barry Switzer and, and Barry Switzer and, and uh, cowboy are buddies. And he wrestled and went to high school with Stan Abel. So doc was locked in. You're going back to school. It's kind of like our deal with Brock Lesnar, you know, our, our deal with the coach, you're going to get, you'll get him back. We will we'll recruit We'll sign him the day he graduates or the day his eligibility is gone. So Doc's got a lot. There's a lot of stories about Doc. Toughest, as legitimately the toughest guy, top five or six toughest guys in all of wrestling ever, in my view. There'll be the Haku discussions and all, and they ain't going to argue that, man. Don't get me wrong. I'm not crazy. But Doc was in that same conversation. So we'll have some good Dr. Death stories next week and follow his career, his career trajectory. I know that Cowboy was on his ass about when he, when he finally got out, of, he was about 330 pounds or 320, something like that as an offensive guard, he killed people, Conrad, he killed people, uh, like that big, well, that, of course, I can't remember the kid's name that got drafted from Alabama the other day, uh, big, uh, left tackle. I think, God damn, he's good, oh, but yeah. he's like that. He's a mauler. He's a grizzly bear. So, uh, but that was doc. So we'll talk about doc and some of his opponents and Japanese runs and, you know, he's one of those guys too, that sometimes didn't make all the best decisions and we have to live with our decisions, folks. It did, it shouldn't put you down for the count, but we've got to understand that we're going to make mistakes and, and we're going to make, we have a lot of choices to make in our life. And sometimes my friend uh, didn't make all the best choices, but it didn't mean I didn't love him any less. And the things that we had to go through in WWE, the brawl for it all and all that stuff we'll talk about was some of it was just absolutely gut wrenching and heartbreaking, heartbreaking. So I, and I, I wrote about that. My wife, Jan, helped me so much through that deal. Cause I, we, you know, Bruce and I were lobbied hard to get Doc into WWF, WWE. And because we thought we'd get one run with Austin. That was all. Uh, but we'll talk about that. There's so many stories. Now that now we're talking, you and I are talking about it here. The shit's just flooding back. Boom, boom. Another story, another image. So, uh, anyway, he's, I'm looking forward to that a lot. Next week, right here on Grillin' JR. Of course, you can hear that episode early and ad free, and you could have listened to this show early if you were joining us over at adfreeshows.com. He is at JR's BBQ. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week, right here on Westwood One, each and every Thursday. Next week, it's all about Dr. Death, Steve Williams on Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Hey, everybody, this is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day, plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network on YouTube or wherever you listen.